Hello, and welcome to the High Street Community Church Podcast. We're so excited you're learning alongside us, and we pray this message leads you closer to the Lord and others. High Street Community Church is simply a family of friends following Jesus. God bless you as you listen. Worship team, that was amazing. Thank you for leading us. What a gift. And Joe, your prayer on piano means so much to hear those words this morning, especially as I get up to talk about this. Um, I don't know about you out there who are in our outdoor service or um, the few of you who are there as well as those who are online. I don't know about you, but you know, a few weeks ago, I wasn't even sure if High Street would be here. You know, when we were facing the fires, I was on the edge of my seat minute by minute, hour by hour, nervous, um, just about how fast things could go. We've known stories where um, things have gone fast and loss has happened, and our community has faced that this, you know, this month or the past couple weeks or whatever, and that's hard. And in one way, um, we're grieving as well as we're also really thankful that we're able to be here this morning and it shifted, I don't know, I was talking to some friends recently, it shifted for me a little bit, um, some of my feelings about shelter in place and COVID, uh, you know, just facing the fires has reminded me how much we do have, even while we're live streaming, or even while we're sitting outside watching our service. It's such a gift to be here. Um, I'm really thankful for that, while also we are feeling together with our community the loss um, and the grief of people's homes, uh, of community, of land, uh, lost that is God's land and a community that, um, that he loves. So I um, just wanted to share you, that with you guys this morning because that's been on my heart. I've missed being at High Street. I've missed being with our community, um, partly because of all that we've walked through. Um, I think our leadership's done an amazing job. And today we get to dive into that in a unique way as we do the Nourish series together. So, like Carrie reminded you, we've been doing the Nourish series each month, two cyclical biblical themes that help uh, us when they're paired together to grow on our own, as well as to grow and invest in the lives of those around us. So this month, we're doing confidence and calling, confidence and calling, and today, we're tackling the theme of confidence. And as we understand and experience what we're calling Christian confidence, we can more fully live into our calling in and through relationship with God. So as we understand this today, it's going to help us live into our full calling with Him. I mean, inversely, it's true too that if we don't understand Christian confidence or if we struggle with confidence in our relationship with God, it directly affects how we live into our calling. We may not live into it well. We may not live into it at all. So this is a really important topic. So what comes to mind for you when you think of confidence? I mean, what does confidence have to do with Christianity? I mean, was Jesus confident? Are Christians supposed to be confident? You know, Hebrews 10.35, which is the book we'll be looking at today, says this, Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. What does God mean when he says this? 
Do not throw away your confidence. Well, before we jump in, let's take a moment and pray. Turn our hearts to Him. Lord Jesus, we turn to You this morning, and You know we've been facing a lot. Layers of smoke, the air quality's been terrible. Some of us have faced loss in our homes or our communities because of the fires. Some of us are in isolation still because of shelter in place and because of COVID-19. And our hearts are uncertain about what our future is. We look at the tumultuous social and political unrest around us. We look at the news. We look at the other disasters that our country and our world are facing. And it's hard to know how to be a people that are called confident before you. What does confidence even mean for a Christian? Lord Jesus, we bring these questions to you this morning, not just because they're theological or they're in the Bible, but also because we're aching to know what it means to be Christians who are confident in the middle of suffering, in the middle of unsure experiences, in the middle of our fears. And we want to draw near to you. We want to know what you say to us. We want to know what you are going to do through your Holy Spirit to affect our hearts. So we invite you, Come, Holy Spirit, this morning. Come lead my words. Come lead our understanding, our minds, our hearts as we engage in your word, as we engage in what you've been doing in our lives. We don't want to leave this morning the same. We need your renewal. We need your touch. We would like to be a people who are called confident. We'd like to be a church that's called a confident church. Would you show us what that looks like? This is what you do, Jesus. Would you come lead my words and lead our time together? We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, before Carrie and I dated, Carrie's my wife, by the way, for those of you who don't know, I liked her for over a year. We had met on summer staff in 2005 at Mount Hermon, and I liked her right away. It was about halfway through the summer where I started to realize it, and that the, the twinge in my heart goes like, oh no, oh no, I'm really liking this girl, what do I do? Um, because it was clear at that point that she wasn't, she did not like me, but she didn't like like me, if you know what I mean. So that summer, I was transferring to Biola University, and luckily, Carrie was already going there, which I didn't know when I decided that. And um, so I was excited, but then right as I was transferring, she was heading off to England for a semester abroad. So, unluckily for me, I didn't get to spend that semester with her, but we emailed a lot. We had a handful of phone calls, and it's actually really fun because we've gone back through recently and read through a lot of those emails. But that began the way that we, we connected, the way we got to know each other was through these, these digital letters back and forth. Well, when January hit and she was heading back home, this was January 2006, she came back and I was eager to connect. We spent five days together before that semester started. This was really fun. We have some great memories. We saw Pride and Prejudice in theaters, if you know that movie with, uh, what's her name? Kira Knightley. Um, which ended up being one of our favorites. And we have a lot of sweet memories from those five days together. But I don't know about you, Carrie, it kind of felt like we were coming to this cliff edge of the next semester because we knew suddenly we'd slip into whatever normal life was at Biola with social requirements and classes and studying 
And, you know, so we, we, we invested those five days, and then we kind of thought it would be over. Well, Monday night of the first day of class, we decide to go get hot chocolate together, end up walking around the campus. And we, surprisingly to both of us, spend the next semester together, day in, day out. Almost every day I saw Carrie, we did something fun. We'd play a game, talk about a class, um, pray together. It was really sweet time. Um, and sometime at the beginning of that semester, it, you know, we had these great moments on the outside, but in my, in my own brooding thoughts, at one night I was thinking like, oh, I don't even know what I was thinking, but I wrote this letter out, I typed it, and stuck it in my pocket. And I don't remember exactly all the details that went into that letter, but it was something along the lines of, you know, Carrie, I really like you, uh, I'm really attracted to you, but for whatever reason, in my own self-rejection thoughts, we can't be together, it's not God's will, or whatever. And, um, and I took this letter, folded it up, and, you know, had all my reasons behind it and stuck it in my pocket. Um, what's so interesting about this, though, is I kept this in my pocket throughout that entire semester. So every day we would hang out, I would have this letter in my pocket. It would move pocket to pocket no matter what day it was. I was wearing shorts or blue jeans or whatever. This letter was still in my pocket, burning in there. We would be laughing, we'd be talking, we'd be sharing, we'd be growing closer. I would probably on the outside have a strong appearance of confidence, connection, fun. Um, but underneath, inside there, was that note just hiding in my pocket. You know, luckily for me, I was dead wrong about Carrie and me. We did get together. And later when we dated, I shared that note with her. And we were able to talk about it. I was able to say, hey, I wrote this crazy letter and I kept it in my pocket for this long and I, I was gonna tell you I liked you and tell you that we shouldn't be together all at once. And it was actually a really encouraging and sweet conversation um, that connected us deeper because of our dating relationship, because we'd said, yeah, I like you, let's, let's commit to each other, let's commit to discovering more of what this means. So, and I don't know about you, but generally, like, my experience with confidence, and I think our experience with confidence, can look like my experience with Carrie. It can look like, on the outside, we seem generally confident. We're able to engage, have fun, we have skills, we have... Uh, things we can accomplish, we're capable, we're engaging. But on the inside, metaphorically, we have a hidden note in our pocket. You know, a confession of insecurity or rejection or fear. And it's probably built on legitimate past experiences. You know, before Carrie and I dated, I would have been so embarrassed if she had actually found that note. But once we were together... I knew how she felt about me, and it was bonding to share that together, and we grew closer. This is similar to our experience in the Christian life. We know, as Christians, we're supposed to be confident. It's all over the Bible. You look at it in the characters of Scripture. Sure, they have failures, but when God calls them to do something and they do it, wow, God shows up. We see testimony time after time again. We also see in our culture a million bad examples of confidence. And we could list these off. I bet you could drop some in the comments right now of, 
characters that you could think of. I thought of some fictional ones that I can share with you later if you want that give us really bad examples of overconfidence, insecure confidence, kind of like selfish confidence, even jaded confidence that we're just brokenness of humanity. But if we're honest as Christians in relationship with God, we know we should feel confidence, but we often have a hidden confession, maybe hidden in our pocket, of our insecurity, our fear, our failures that we wouldn't want anyone to read. And likely, we haven't shared that letter with God either. Plus, for us now, currently, as we face COVID-19, as we face shelter in place and fires and evacuation, as we face damage to our community, days of smoke, plus the general political and social unrest, you know, how are we supposed to be confident as Christians? How can we be confident in relationship with God when things seem to be going so badly around us? Well, the book of Hebrews dives into this theme of confidence, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Now, take a wild guess. Who do you think the book of Hebrews is written to? That's right, the Hebrews. They are a Jewish Jewish audience that had given their lives to Jesus. the, The book of Hebrews is written to a highly persecuted Jewish community. They'd faced past persecution. They'd faced the seizure of property the loss of homes, they'd been jailed, mistreated, possibly even martyred. And we can tell by what the, the way the writer talks that they anticipate that more persecution was coming. The Hebrews also were a displaced people. Now we can relate to this in some extent. They lived outside of Israel. They were isolated from their homeland. This is likely because of the Roman oppression that they would have faced in Israel and the persecution that they would have faced from the Orthodox Jews. So they were persecuted on both sides, from the government that they lived under and from their own people for believing in Jesus. They were extremely isolated. The Hebrews were also a discouraged people. Some of them had turned away from the faith entirely because of what they'd been through. And with all the sing, those who left felt it was just easier not to believe. It was easier not to believe in Jesus. And others had just stopped coming because of fear. Do you relate? Displacement, isolation, onslaught of social instability, an uncertain future. You know, the author of Hebrews was a Christian Jew as well, and he was writing to those facing struggle and trials, and he presents an argument about how this new covenant relationship with Jesus can give them confidence in God in order to face the coming days ahead. And don't we need this now too? Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, gives us two types of confidence that we're going to focus on. He actually... What's surprising is the author of Hebrews uses three different words, and the translators who translate Greek into English translate that into one word, confidence in English. 
three different Greek words that become one word in English. We're going to focus on two of those Greek words today, and they'll help us to understand what Christian confidence looks like. So let's open up, open up with me if you, if you have your Bibles or if it's on your phones or whatever, to Hebrews chapter 3 in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 3. And these, these uses of confidence are just within a few minutes of each other. So let's look at Hebrews, verse, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. And then we're going to look at Hebrews 3.14. Hebrews 3, verse 6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are of his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we see here that if we're of the house of God, if we're of the house that Jesus is the son over, then we hold fast to our confidence. Now go to Hebrews 3.14. This verse looks very similar. This also says something, I mean, almost word for word. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So here we have confidence and confidence. So these in the English, same word, right? But the Greek uses two different words. Why would the author of Hebrews use two different words here? Let's examine. In Hebrews 3.6, the Greek word is a word parousia. It's parousia. So when it says we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and hope, it means parousia. It means something like freedom and boldness in speaking. Unreserved speech in, or conversation where you're open and free frank, bold. It's a conversation spoken without ambiguity, without figures or metaphor. It's plain. It's clear. It's not complex. And most importantly, it's sincere. It's to the heart. So if we're going to define parousia for us, it's a bold and sincere confidence. That's what parousia means. An example of this is in Acts 4. Peter and John stand before the Jewish leaders, and it says this. This is a great example of what Parisia looks like. The Jewish leaders are ready to persecute them, and it says, Acts 4.13, Now when they saw the boldness, which is the same word Parisia, confidence of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, the Jews were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This is what parousia looks like. It's bold confidence, so much so that someone recognizes that you've been with Jesus. Bold and sincere confidence. It's interesting that in Acts 4, as in response to the leaders telling them to be quiet, these Jewish leaders... This is an expression of parousia. Peter and John say, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Something had so occurred in their hearts that, that made them bold and sincere in their confidence. And in the wake of even further persecution, as a church, Peter and John meet with the group right after this, and they pray for more parousia. 
They pray for more confidence that God's hand would go before them so that they would continue to be bold and sincere in their testimony of who Jesus is so that more people would say and recognize that they had been with Jesus. So that's parousia. But what about verse 14? How is that word different? Well, Hebrews 3.14 says this in the Greek. The word confidence is actually hypostasis. It's like hypostasis. Hypostasis. I just think it's a funny word. But hypostasis actually, it's different than bold. It's a, it means something like that which has a foundation. It's firm and solid. It's reality, the nature of a thing. It's like assurance because it's just the real thing. It's like, you know, when you talk to someone and you're like, that's just how things are. That's what hypostasis is. You're, you're drawing back to that original reality and saying, like, that's just the way things work. This is hypostasis. In this verse, hypostasis can be translated the beginning of our assurance. When we first believed, the reality we had at the start. Are you beginning to see the difference between parousia and hypostasis? We can define hypostasis as the powerful onset of our trust. So an example might be something like uh, maybe Carrie and I are five or six years into marriage and we turn to each other and say, you know, that was a really tough argument, but we'll resolve this because we vowed to love each other. That vow in marriage is the powerful onset of our trust. It's our hypostasis. The point is that between hypostasis, the powerful onset of our trust, and parousia, the bold and sincere confidence that we have, there's actually a progression of relationship. We move from hypostasis into an expression of parousia. Hypostasis, like I said, is the vow, and then parousia is the honest conversation. If hypostasis is like the root of a plant, parousia is the flower and the thorn. It's just the, the expression of what the plant is as it comes out. The point is that because of this powerful onset of our trust, we actually can develop a bold and sincere confidence. This is what Christian confidence can look like. An example of this, again, from Carrie's in my relationship, we went to grad school together, and in our pre-practicum class, which was the previous class before we took practicum for spiritual direction, it's called pre-prac, um, you're trained, you're given just some of the initial to begin listening to God in someone else's life. So this was about two years into our marriage, and we had gotten just the beginning few of these skills right before we went on our date night. And as we're driving over to the restaurant that we were going to meet at, or when we were going to eat at, um, Carrie and I ended up talking about a girl that I used to like in high school. And Carrie started to use some of these skills and ask these questions in a very caring, open way for me, to begin exploring some of this stuff. And because of our hypostasis, because of our vow, because of our, the onset of our trust, I was able to share honestly with Carrie about my experience of liking this girl in high school, liking girls in general, what were my fears of rejection, what were my joys, what made me excited. You know, because of that vow, I could boldly go there with her and share things that I wouldn't have shared with anyone other than her because she is my wife. 
So hypostasis and parousia actually create a full picture for us of what biblical confidence looks like. So, I mean, we, we, now that we're exploring hypostasis and parousia, the bold onset of our, or the, the powerful onset of our faith and the, um, the bold and sincere confidence that we can have, this actually paints a, a familiar picture of us, for us of our Christian journey. Most Christian story looks something like this, and I'm sure you've gone through something similar. We start at what, point one, God changed my life. You know, he delivered me from sin and selfishness. We're forgiven, healed, reconnected to God. Then at some point, you know, life goes well. You know, things are well. I, I'm, you know, hashtag blessed. We're doing good. And then at some point, life begins to not go the way we planned. And then after that, we approach God with the need after we've grown frustrated enough with that situation. You know, hopefully we approach God with that need. As we approach God with that need, that is parousia. That's bold and sincere, right? Bold and sincere confidence. And eventually in that time as we're approaching him, that situation shifts. And we learn something in the midst of that about who God is and who we are this learning reestablishes our hypostasis. It kind of uh, gives an assurance, which is that same meaning of that word, of who God is and who we are, replaying our original confidence, the powerful onset of our trust. And as we do that, it actually creates sort of a, you know, a cycle. A, 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 uh, Carrie and I were talking about it the other night. She talked about it like a spiral staircase. We go around the same pattern. So we go through again. You know, God's changed my life, and now I, I prayed through this situation, and now God's changed the situation, and now maybe life's going a little better, and then life goes not according to plan. And then we approach God with that need, which is parousia. And you see, as we do this cycle again and again, we revisit hypostasis and parousia over and over, and we build a, that, that powerful onset of our confidence into that, this continued assurance of who God is. And that, as that develops, our parousia confidence, our bold and sincere confidence grows. So this may be familiar for you who have walked with Jesus for a while. In that story, we begin to see a picture of what Christian maturity looks like, at least in an ideal world. But for many of us, at some point, as life goes not the way we planned, our confidence is challenged or shaken on a deeper level. Maybe for you it's the onslaught of too much difficulty. Maybe for some it's an irrecoverable loss. For others it might be a season of grief that lasts too long. Or a betrayal of a trusted friend or a fellow believer. Or maybe it's just the devastation and evil that we're seeing all over the news. For you that relate to this, what comes to mind for you as you think of a situation that challenged or shook your confidence? And what do we do when our Christian confidence is shaken like this? You know, on the outside, most Christians would say, keep trusting. You know, God is good. 
or I'll pray for you, or God's will be done. You know, and though these are true statements, these expressions often hide an insecurity and can be spoken as sort of like a band-aid over our lack of trust rather than a way to engage God. And on the inside, many Christians and churches still resign themselves to a neutral or ambiguous faith. Somewhere along the line, we stop being bold and sincere in our confidence with God. Somewhere along the line, we begin to forget the powerful onset of our trust that first led us to our foundational faith, our original confidence. And what do we do then? What do we do? Interestingly, the book of Hebrews gives two dynamic scenes to reinforce and rebuild Christian confidence. And they have to do with parousia, our bold and sincere confidence. These two dramatic scenes occur in the throne room. The book of Hebrews depicts the resurrected Jesus as seated on his throne in the heavens, victorious over sin and death because of the cross. The cross, you know, the greatest moment, or I mean, the greatest moment of defeat is the cross, but is transformed into the mightiest victory. The Jewish audience would have understood this throne room image of Jesus as a king like their king David and as a priest like the ones in their temple. As a priest, Jesus, because of his sacrifice, dealt with the sin issue once and for all. So the Hebrews knew in their faith in him, they could approach God's presence. And as a king, Jesus, because of his perfect sacrifice and divinity, is now the reigning king over all. This means he inherited all power and authority. So for the Hebrews, their confidence in the midst of their suffering came both from Jesus' personal sacrifice to forgive and heal them and from his reigning power to affect their current circumstances. So not only had Jesus done something about their past, he also is doing something about their present and their future. Thus the Hebrews and us are invited and called to act on their hypostasis confidence and boldly and sincerely approach his throne in Parisia confidence. But how does this affect those broken, shaken, injured, or numb parts of their Christian confidence? And how does it affect ours when they're really facing these struggles? Well, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, is the first in this, in these, uh, in this throne room scene. Let's take a look at this together. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it's a familiar passage. It's one of my favorites in the book of Hebrews. Let's read it. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, a high priest who... We, oh, sorry. 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The word confidence there is parousia. This is going to give us a little different picture of what bold and sincere might look like. According to this verse, when are we called into the throne room? When are we invited into the space where Jesus is reigning? Well, it's in our time of need, when we are aching for mercy, and when we need grace to help. The best part is that we have a God, Jesus, who can sympathize. The root of that word sympathize in Greek means to feel pain together, means compassion. It means identifying with us in our suffering. It's like Jesus says, if you're hurting, I'm hurting. This is hurting me like it's hurting you. Jesus understands anything and everything that might derail our confidence in him. Plus, he is reigning. We're in the throne room, and by his spirit in us, he can actually do something about that. He can do something about that issue in us. He can do something about our circumstances. Do you know Jesus like this in your hard circumstance? You know, our confidence is transformed when we realize our boldness and our sincerity are to be used in repairing our relationship with God and receiving power to heal and restore our circumstances that he is already reigning over. You know, in psychology, they talk about an attachment relationship, and in order to have a healthy, secure attachment that they parallel to self-confidence later in life, you need to go through a few steps with your caretaker. You go through attunement, you go through um, breaking a relationship where there's uh, a need that's not met, then you go through repair, repairing that relationship, and then you go into reattunement. And they say you go through this over and over again. It's like that cycle we talked about, going from hupostis to parousia, hupostis to parousia, where we are able to repair our relationship with our caretaker. And that is meant to mirror our relationship with God as adults. We do the same thing where we go through brokenness and then repair a relationship. And boldness and sincerity, that parousia, isn't just a performance by which we look like we're confident in God. It's actually the permission by which we engage that area with the Lord and are able to rebuild and restore our confidence with him. You see, we are called, we are welcome to stand before Jesus' throne, that place where angels fear to tread and speak openly from our hearts about our needs. And there, as we share that with the Lord, we can receive from Jesus, who says in this verse he's ready to pour out mercy, which is God's kindness towards those in distress. And he's ready to pour out grace, which is God's kindness towards those who don't 
deserve it. We all fall into at least one of those categories. I don't know about you, but for me, this is a totally different picture of confidence than anything I've seen outside of the Bible. Now, there's this beautiful story. I, if you notice, I like the Chronicles of Narnia. And the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis illustrates this experience of coming before the throne in a story with a young boy named Eustace. Now, Eustace and the other uh, children who've been swept into Narnia are on a ship in this story. And Eustace is just an annoying, selfish, finicky, every, I mean, if you have the entire crew, no one on that crew on that ship likes him. He is full of false confidence and, and bugs everybody. So the crew lands on an island after a storm, their mast is broken, and they have to figure out how to rebuild. And to avoid helping everybody, Eustace sneaks off. So he leaves them in the middle when he could be a help, and he sneaks off, climbs up into these mountains, and to a surprise, he sees a dragon. And it's an old-looking dragon, and right before his eyes, this dragon dies. And he's really confused, but what he finds is the, the cave of this dragon's treasure. And he runs inside, and he slides this golden armband on and falls asleep on all the treasure, satisfied, finally. Suddenly he wakes up, and at first he sees two dragons next to him, what he thinks at first are two dragons, until he moves them around and realizes those are his arms, and the smoke coming up before him is smoke coming from his own nostrils. He's actually been transformed into a dragon. So this struggle shocks him, and he flies around the island, and at first is a, a bit excited, but then realizes the struggle completely separates him from the crew and from the people that he's uh, you know, on this island with. And he's forced to see his actual insecurities. Eventually, this causes them to help them to rebuild. And by the end, the crew and him are afraid that because he's a dragon, he won't be able to follow them on the ship and he'll be left behind. Until one night, things change and Eustace appears as a boy again. So let's jump into the story of the Voyage of the Untreader and see how Eustace his confidence is changed. So he runs, Eustace is, uh, runs into Edmund, which is one of his uh, cousins and one of the people, one of the young boys from the real world. So Edmund draws his sword and was about to challenge the stranger when the stranger said in a low voice, Is that you, Edmund? Yes, who are you? said he. Don't you know me? said the other. It's me, Eustace. By Jove, said Edmund, so it is, my dear chap. Hush, said Eustace, and lurched as if he was going to fall. Hello, said Edmund, steadying him. What, what's up? Are you ill? Eustace was silent for so long that Edmund thought he was fainting. But at last he said, it's been ghastly. You don't know, but it's all right now. Could we go and talk somewhere? I don't want to meet with the others just yet. Yeah, yeah, anywhere you like, said Edmund. We can go and sit on the rocks over there. I say, I am glad to see you, or uh, looking yourself again. You must have had a pretty beastly time. They went to the rocks and sat down, looking out across the bay while the sky got paler and paler, and the stars disappeared except for one very bright one low down near the horizon. I won't tell you how I became a... Uh, 
a dragon till I can tell the others and get it all over, said Eustace. By the way, I didn't even know it was a dragon until I heard you all using the word when I turned up there the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. Fire ahead, said Edmund. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever, and that beastly arm ring was hurting like anything. Is that all right now? Eustace laughed, a different laugh from any Edmund had heard him give before, and slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. There it is, he said, and anyone who likes can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would have become of me, and then, but, mind you, it may have been all a dream, I don't know. Go on, said Edmund, with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me, I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came closer to me and looked straight into my eyes. And I shut my eyes tight. But that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I I don't know. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did. But it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me. So I got up and followed it. And it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and around the lion wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of the mountain I'd never seen before, and on the top of the mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. In the middle of it there was a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but there was a lot, it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was clear as anything I thought, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe it would ease the pain in my leg. But the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought. Thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and all my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down and saw it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. Oh, that's right, said I. It only means I had another smaller suit on underneath, the first one. I'll have to get it off too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down into the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, Oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself on the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. 
The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it's such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more novelly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smarter than I had been, and smaller, sorry, not smarter, than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't know, I didn't like that much for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they have no muscle and are pretty moldy and compared with Caspians, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? I think you've seen Aslan. As you might be familiar with in the Narnian stories, Aslan is a picture of Jesus. And this is a wonderful picture of the throne room scene. Hebrews gives us this picture of living um, in Christian confidence, but Eustace helps us to understand what it's like to shed our false confidences, what it's like to bring our broken areas of confidence to the Lord and let God peel off those layers, to have those that Parisia bold, sincere, honest confidence with him by which he can get to the heart of who we are. And I love the, the picture of the layers coming off. You have that hypostasis Parisia cycle going on. You go deeper and deeper and deeper. And the cycle going deeper and deeper as, as God's getting at the heart. And then at the heart, you're suddenly yourself again. Right? And I love this beautiful picture that Aslan dresses Eustace in new clothes, human clothes, the right clothes that fit him for the way he looks. Aslan does a deep work in Eustace, touching the areas that he couldn't heal alone. And because of this, Eustace's confidence is transformed. It's transformed both in the hypostasis sense, where it's a, a powerful um, onset of trust in God or in Aslan, and it also transforms his Parisia confidence, his bold and sincere confidence in who God is. That is why he's able to share his story with Edmund and why then he shares his story with the crew when he sees them again. You know, true biblical confidence, it's not fake, it's not forceful, it's not spontaneous. 
It's not reckless. But it is hypostasis. It's a powerful onset of our trust in God. And this is replayed in continual assurances of His very real love and provision. And biblical confidence is parousia. It's our bold and sincere confidence by which we can approach His throne in our time of need. And there we can receive mercy and grace. And in that transformation, we can live in confidence in the very real circumstances and relationships that we're facing right now. Well, to conclude this, I would like to read through the second throne room picture. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, start with verse 19 through 25. And I actually want to use this as a way to pray into communion. So we're going to move into communion during this time of prayer. But let's read Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And this just takes us a bit deeper into what it means to allow Jesus to restore and meet those areas of confidence that's been shaken or broken and have that met by his power and his life. Hebrews 10, verses 19, I'll read it, and then we're going to pray through it. And while I'm praying, Joe's going to play some piano in the background. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, parousia confidence, bold and sincere confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord Jesus, we turn to you now We want to pray through this verse, through this invitation. We turn to you first in hypostasis, confidence, knowing that the powerful onset of our trust was because of your blood. Like verse 19 says, that by your blood, by your sacrifice, like the Hebrews understood, it was your sacrifice that allowed us to come into your presence. And so we do this now together. Let us come into your presence, Lord. Let us stand before your throne where angels fear to tread. And like verse 22 says, let us draw near. Let us draw near to you. James promises that as we draw near to you, God, you draw near to us. We need this. For some of us, our confidence has been shaken. And we want to come with you, come to you 
utilizing our bold and sincere confidence to tell you we have been shaken. We aren't always confident in the way that we'd like to be with you. And we do this, like that same verse said, just with a true heart, sincerity. We don't want to hide anything. You say to worship you in spirit and in truth. So we just bring the truth of where we're at to you, God. We bring the truth of our hearts. And we don't want to hide. We bring out that, like my story, that letter that's hiding in our pocket. Those areas where we need to know who you are again. And as we open that up to you, Lord, we receive cleansing. You promise to sprinkle our hearts clean from an evil conscience and wash our bodies with pure water. You know, Lord, the sin and the suffering we faced, those really affect our confidence. Those affect our ability to trust. And we know when we're in your presence, we can be cleansed and be washed clean. Would you wash us now, Lord? And Lord, as we just receive your cleansing, we pray to hold fast. We hold fast not because of our own strength, but because he who promises, because you who promise are faithful, you're a faithful God. You are the one that endures. It's not our survival strength that gets us through. It's relying on the truth of who you are. We return to you, Lord. We hold fast. And we consider in this moment your heart. We can't stir ourselves up to love and good deeds. We can't even stir others to unless we understand, Lord, that your heart is what moves us towards other people. And that when you touch our confidence, it actually gives us an overflow. Lord, would you bring that overflow into our lives, that overflow that moves us out from our own fragile places into a bold and sincere confidence that trusts others, that reaches out to others, that speaks your word and your life and your encouragement to others. Lord, we pray that people in this church, the people in our community would turn and say, wow, they have been with Jesus. Like they said about Peter and John. They have been with Jesus. Lord, we long for that to be said for ourselves. And Lord, ask, lastly, we just ask for your grace and your mercy to lead us as we long to meet together. I see scattered faces in this room and it's good to see them. I know there are scattered faces outside and we're thankful to have people outside. But Lord, we long to meet together. And Lord, in the midst of that, there's a lot of fear. And we want to be honest about that. Fear can get in the way. There's, lots, there's things that are to be feared or to be um, careful about, but it can also get in the way of our confidence. And we don't want fear to be in the way of our confidence anymore, Lord. We want to be able to walk in hypostasis, that the onset, the powerful onset of our faith would be the foundation for our way forward. 
and that in Parisia we would be able to be bold and sincere and connect with those in the ways that we can now as well as, Lord, just pave the way for our future connections. Bring our church back into this room. Bring churches back together. Allow us to connect again in our connect groups. Give us moments with people face to face. We long for this. We see this in your word. Would you draw us closer, Jesus? We stand on these things in your throne room. And Lord, as we just honor these prayers, as we speak them before you, we'd like to enter into the celebration of communion. Communion is hypostasis. It's a place where we honor and celebrate what you did for us that no one else could do for us. So as we take the bread, which is the body broken for us, and as we drink the cup, which is your blood spilled for us, we remember your death. And we remember your sacrifice. Lord, days on end we have forgotten, but right now we take a moment and remember what you did and that the death that you died brought life to us, brings life to those places where we need it. And as you're ascended, seated on the throne, where we're invited into your presence, we take confidence now in your current reign that it's because of the cross that you are victorious. So let us celebrate and take the elements together now in your name, Jesus. We pray these things.